Hi, I'm Dave Miranda, General Counsel and Past President of the New York State Bar Association. Welcome to Miranda Warnings. You have the right to remain listening. This week on Miranda Warnings, we're talking about gun regulations and the U.S. Supreme Court decision in Bruin. We're very pleased to have with us Judge Peggy Finnerty. Welcome. Thank you, David. Good to be here. And I say Judge Peggy Finnerty because prior to entering private practice, she served as a New York City criminal court judge. Uh, and she also served as a prosecutor in the Manhattan DA's office. Uh, she's a partner at Getnick and Getnick in New York City. And she also serves as co-chair of the New York State Bar Association's Task Force on Mass Shootings and Assault Weapons. And it is really wonderful to have you uh, with us here today, Peggy, to talk about gun regulations. Uh, you are one of my most favorite people. And uh, I know you've done so much work for the Bar Association regarding uh, furthering the cause of gun regulation. I wanna start by talking about the, the Bruin case uh, when the US Supreme Court reversed and remanded uh, a case from New York uh, regarding New York's law that required applicants for a concealed carry permit uh, to justify why they needed a permit uh, for the concealed carry. Uh, the Supreme Court ruled that that part of New York's law uh, violated the Second Amendment. Tell us a little bit about the su Supreme Court decision and uh, why it's important to uh, New York State. Uh, it's, it's a crucial decision, David. This is a huge change in New York law. Uh, this provision has been in the state law Oh, since about 1913, it dates back to the Sul something called the Sullivan Law. And that law was amended in 1913 to establish uh, standards for the issuance of a license uh, to uh, uh, carry a weapon uh, in a concealed manner. And it, it required that an individual have a proper cause for carrying a weapon in a, in a concealed manner. Now, proper cause um, required that you demonstrate a special need for self-protection that was distinguished from that of the general community. So it really isn't enough if you, let's say, live in a crime-ridden neighborhood or you go to work uh, through an area where you feel that you might be robbed or mugged. You have to have some specific articulable reason why you think you have proper cause and special need uh, to carry a weapon. Uh, it may be that you've received threats from an individual, um, or perhaps you can come up with some other specific reason, perhaps some, there's been an attempt on your life, but it's gotta be just more than, well, I go to work through a dangerous area and I, I feel I need a gun. So that is, a, that is a much higher burden than many states have. And it's, it's considered to be a may issue uh, permit as opposed to a shall issue. And New York uh, was only about one of seven states right now that have that kind of a provision. And as I said, it, it, it really goes back well over a, a hundred years. So this is, this is really a sea change because what the Supreme Court decided is that that proper cause requirement violates the Second Amendment. So you can't have that provision in your law anymore. 
So it was the it wasn't the fact that we required uh, uh, concealed carry permits. It was when someone was applying for it, the burden was on the applicant uh, to say why they had some sort of special need for it, right? And the court said that putting that burden on the applicant to establish a special need was violative of the Second Amendment. That, that's exactly right, because the court had established in the seminal case of uh, the District of Columbia versus Heller back in 2008 that the Second Amendment guarantees the, the right of law-abiding citizens to, to keep and bear arms, in other words, to possess and uh, weapons uh, in case of uh, some sort of dangerous confrontation. So in other words, the right to self-defense. They said there that, you know, the Second Amendment doesn't just apply to the militia. It applies to individuals. And in the Heller case, that involved the right of an individual to possess a weapon for self-defense in their home. So we were talking about out on, on the public streets. And then a few years after Heller, in a case called McDonald versus the city of Chicago, the Supreme Court decided, well, look, through the 14th Amendment, you, you know, this Second Amendment right applies to all of the states. So they had decided the issue with respect to it's not just militia and you have a right to possess a firearm for self-defense, but Heller just talked about the home. Now in Bruin, that right is, is it's clarified by the court applies to outside of the home as well, that right to defend yourself. And therefore, um, New York's law was just too restrictive and it violated the Second Amendment. So that, that's really the, the nature of the, uh, the ruling. The, the court didn't say that New York can't uh, provide uh, for licensing of individuals. The court didn't say that the state can't limit uh, which individuals get a license because there are uh, well-founded exceptions, both in federal law and state law, with respect to individuals with uh, felony convictions or in individuals who have been perhaps um, institutionalized for mental health issues, um, individuals who are convicted of domestic violence uh, offenses, even misdemeanor offenses, or who have domestic violence uh, orders of protection, all of those people, you, you can exclude them. Um, so they weren't taking away the ability of the state to totally regulate who gets a license, including a concealed carry license. But they were just saying, look, this proper cause requirement that you've got and only a, a few other states have, that, that is just too restrictive and, and violate, violates an individual's Second Amendment right. Right. So that's an important point. Right. So as a result of this decision, you know, the Supreme Court is not saying anybody with a gun can just walk around with it in public. Now, the New York State still ha you still have to get a license for a concealed carry. What they're saying is the standard for either approving or denying that license uh, is going to be uh, uh, less burdensome on the applicant. And in this case, now, rather than the applicant establishing why they need it, the state is going to have to show why they shouldn't have it for some of the reasons that that you just suggested. Yes, that no, that that is exactly right. And uh, this is a huge change, obviously, for New York State. Uh, there are many other states um, where this already is a law, and in fact, there are 
states where it's you don't even have to have a license. But um, New York was one of the more restrictive uh, states in this regard. As I said, I think there were only about six others who had this type of a provision, and they, they refer to them as may issue as opposed to shall issue states. Right. So following this uh, decision by the Supreme Court, uh, New York's governor, Kathy Hochul, called a special session of the legislature to return uh, to address some additional gun regulation issues uh, so that uh, to kind of, I, I think, dampen the impact of this decision uh, on New York to provide, if, if we can't limit who we provide it to, who we provide licenses to for concealed carry, perhaps uh, increase the restrictions as to where uh, a, a, a gun can be carried uh, throughout the state. And so there have been some changes in the law in New York that are relatively, obviously relatively new because they came from this decision. Tell us a little bit about some of the changes in New York regarding uh, where a, a gun can be carried. Yes, no, this is a very um, comprehensive and interesting legislation, uh, David. One, one of the big features is that there's going to be much more training required for individuals who are granted a concealed carry permit. You know, I should just say before, before this decision, it, it was less difficult to get a, um, a, a license to, let's say, use a weapon for target practice or for hunting. You still had to meet the requirements, but it didn't have this onerous, uh, strict requirement of proper cause. Well, the state is really upping the training for individuals who get concealed carry permits and uh, really, before this, um, it was only Westchester County that that had uh, fairly rigid training requirements. So there's going to have to be classroom instruction of several hours. You're going to have to actually undergo training at a live fire range. Um, also, the the process to get the license will be um, stricter. There's going to be an in-person interview required. Um, the state's going to take a look or has a right to take a look at, at your social media accounts, perhaps to see if there's any red flag, if you will, uh, that makes them think that you, you would be a danger if you were granted a concealed carry permit. So that the, that's a huge, um, important change. The, the, uh, the training requirements, and that that is going to be conducted uh, in conjunction with the state police and the Division of Criminal Justice Services in the state level. The other big, big change, and there, there there's more than just two, but the other one I'd like to highlight right now are um, that the, the state sets forth sensitive locations where you cannot carry a weapon, whether it's a a firearm, a rifle, or a shotgun. You can't bring a weapon whatsoever. And if you knowingly violate this provision uh, is a class E felony. So what they've set forth in the law, I believe it's in penal law section 265.01E, is a list of sensitive locations where you cannot carry a, a weapon, even if you've got the license to do so, even if you've got this concealed carry permit, you can't take your gun there. And the Supreme Court has acknowledged in past decisions that there are locations historically where you cannot take weapons. They point to a few examples such as 
uh, courthouses or schools. Um, it's federal law that you can't take a weapon into a federal building or a federal courthouse. So the, um, the governor and the legislature has come up with a very expansive list of places where you cannot take a weapon. And I'll just give you some examples. Um, they, they include any locations that are owned or controlled by the federal, state, or local governments. So of course that would include courthouses, but it could also include government buildings, any healthcare facilities, any places of worship, libraries, playgrounds, parks, zoos, childcare facilities, any addiction treatment locations, any homeless shelters, any residential programs for victims of domestic violence, um, any educational institution, public transportation. I know this was something that a lot of people were concerned about. You know, am I going to be riding the subway with people who are carrying a weapon? Well, according to this new legislation, um, you can't take it on the subway, trains, any kind of public transportation, buses. Um, you can't take it where alcohol is consumed. So if there is a facility that has a liquor license, um, you can't take it there. You can't take it to entertainment venues, theaters, racetracks, museums, polling places. Um, you can't take it to places where people are lawfully holding a rally or a protest. Interestingly, the, the law also includes Times Square. You shouldn't, you can't take your weapon in Times Square. I, I think the reasons for that um, are pretty obvious. So it's a very, very expansive list. Um, will there be challenges to it? Most likely. Um, however, I think that the legislature felt that they could justify um, limiting the use of, or the possession of weapons in all of those locations. And so this is this is really a huge change um, in the in the law, and I think will have a big impact on the uh, how many people are walking around with um, concealed carry weapons. Um, the other interesting part of, of the New York law is that um, there is an assumption that you cannot bring it onto private property, and if a private property owner does want to allow people to come on the premises with uh, a weapon, then they have to uh, expressly indicate that. Otherwise, there's this presumption that you're not allowed on private property. So office buildings, um, there are a lot of exclusions. Uh, the other really interesting thing that I found in the legislature, this new legislature, is that the state is going to take it upon itself to oversee background checks. And it is therefore going to become what's known as a point of contact state for background check purposes. So in the past, and in certain instances for various states, they rely on the federal government and the FBI to uh, do the background checks. And New York State has decided it's now going to be the state that performs this background check function. and. They, I think the state believes, and this is often the case, that the state system is going to have a more complete, uh, more complete information with respect to criminal record dispositions, mental health um, records, uh, domestic violence records, um, restraining order records. So now, uh, before somebody can sell a firearm, they're going to have to go look to the state to do this 
background check. So th this is a very, very big change. And I, I think the state just feels it will have more control over ensuring that there is as much information as possible in that background check system. Um, because if the information is not in the system, then you're not going to get a complete background check. And that was part of the problem um, we've seen in the past with the what's known as the the NICS system, which is what the FBI uses. And uh, I'm not suggesting it's not a good system. It's, it's a very comprehensive system, but there are instances sometimes where they don't have the most up-to-date disposition. So for example, um, you've heard of the Charleston loophole. Well, and that awful- I've heard of it, but yes. uh, maybe you can explain it. I, absolutely. So in, in a case in, in Charleston, South Carolina, there was a situation where a 21-year-old applied for a, uh, to uh, buy a, a, a gun. And the um, seller performed the necessary proper background check, but under the federal law, uh, the government only has three business days to um, get the information, check the information, and tell the seller whether they can sell it or not. And if they don't do the background check within three business days, then the sale can go through regardless. And it turns out in this case, the person who was doing the background check um, noticed that the individual um, was arrested, but didn't have any disposition. So they tried to reach out to the local authorities where the, the arrest had taken place and um, was not able to get a call back within the three days. And this individual, this 21 year old took the gun, went into a church during a Bible prayer session and murdered the, the minister and eight parishioners in just a, a horrific, horrific mass shooting. And it turns out that um, this person who had been arrested acknowledged that uh, he was a drug user and that would have disqualified him under federal law, under state law. If you're a drug user or have a drug conviction, you, you, can't, you can't possess a gun. And because of this limitation on the time frame, um, the background check wasn't able to be completed and therefore the sale went through. So in any event, I think the state is really trying by taking over control of the background checks to prevent this um, type of situation. The state also has, a, uh, has law on the books, which allows much more time for a background check to be completed than three business days. I mean, you can, you can have as much as 30 days if need be. So the state already took care of that problem, but they're hoping by having, you know, having the background checks run through them that this database that will be checked will be, will be more complete. Let me ask you about the, the background check and the change that you're suggesting where in the past it was uh, the background check was done through the FBI. And now we're suggesting that it go through New York State entirely. Why wouldn't the FBI have access to New York State databases uh, on this information? Number one. And then number two, even if even if they don't have access and the New York State database is perhaps more complete with respect to New York, uh, we don't have access to all the other states that the FBI might have. So someone could be coming from another state, maybe relocating to New York and now applying and have a, a clean record uh, in New York, but maybe have gotten into trouble in, in another state. It would seem to me as though uh, having a federal uh, database 
would be more comprehensive? Well, they're still going to have access to all those federal records. I mean, the, the, the Fed, the federal government and the state governments do share that information. So I, I don't mean to suggest that they will only know what's happening in New York State. They will still be able to access FBI records. It's just that they're going to be the one responsible for, they're going to be the first point of contact, if you will, for the seller. Um, and, and, and I should add, it's not just licensed firearms dealers. New York State also requires that private sales uh, have background checks performed, which is another way that New York stands out from many other states in the federal government. Federal government does not require background checks for private sales. So but private sales, you mean like, a, for example, like at a gun show, right, where someone could go to a gun show, they're not going to be able to walk in and purchase a gun and leave, right? They'll have to go through the same process. Right. Like at a gun show or like on the Internet where I want to sell my gun and I put an ad on the Internet and, and somebody contacts me. You know, that happens, too where just one person sells a gun to another person. And in many places that can happen without any kind of a background check. But again, New York has tried to, to prevent that by requiring these background checks for private sales. But um, in any event, to your point, so, so New York will still have access to federal records. And you know the, the federal system, the NICS system, um, there have been laws passed to really encourage states to share information with the federal government, but the federal government can't make the states do that. It's really voluntary. And, and many states do, but perhaps they don't share um, all of the records that the state has access to. I mean, you find that a lot with mental health records, perhaps not, not being transmitted. Uh, as frequently, or perhaps some of the local domestic violence uh, orders of protection, perhaps that's not transmitted to the state um, as timely as it might. Um, so the, the, the federal government, when they see that there's something open and there's no disposition, they try to reach out on the local level, like they did in Charleston to see what happens. But, you know, if, if, if they don't hear back or, you know, it's a weekend, um, things can fall through the cracks. And I think with the state system, the state feels, and I think they're right, that it will be easier for them to track down a disposition uh, within the state and, and to reach out perhaps to local communities to find out what, you know, was there an order of protection issued against this individual? Because that would be a disqualifying factor um, you know, in a, in a domestic violence case. So, um, you know, different states do it differently. There are uh, 13 other states that uh, are the initial point of contact uh, for a background check. Again, that doesn't mean they don't have access to federal records, but they, they take the lead. But then there are other states that, that really rely on, on the uh, FBI as the first point of contact. And then there are some states that let the feds do it for perhaps um, rifle or um, shotgun uh, licensing and not for firearm licensing. So it's, it's sort of a mixture, but you know, the key is you wanna get all of the crucial information into these databases, um, whether it's on the state databases, federal databases, if that information isn't in there, then um, the seller and law enforcement won't know that this person shouldn't have a gun. 
and, and, and has a disqualifying factor in their background. So that's really key. And there has been legislation passed to give funding to states to encourage them to include these records into the federal database. So we've been talking uh, mostly about changes to the New York state laws because the Bruin case involved uh, in particular New York state law. But we've seen some recent movement in federal legislation on gun regulations. And uh, that was not necessarily because of the Bruin case, but because of some of the recent uh, tragedies we'd had regarding gun violence uh, that prompted uh, senators and Congress people from both sides of the aisle to now support some additional uh, regulation regarding, uh, regarding guns. Uh, tell us a little bit about some of the new federal legislation that's been passed um, in, in recent days. Yes, I think you're, ta you're talking about, David, the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. And I think it's fair to say that really arose out of um, the, the tragic mass shootings in Buffalo, uh, New York, and Uvalde, Texas. I mean, I think that was the impetus, although there have been um, legislators on both sides of the aisle that have really been trying to enact uh, common sense gun regulation in, in response to all of the mass shootings that and all of the gun violence, not just mass shootings. I mean, more people die by suicide than die, die in mass shootings. Um, but just the U.S. has more gun violence uh, per capita than any other country in the world. So um, they did finally agree, um, 10 Republicans and 10 Democrats, and they passed the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. And, it, and most people feel, you know, it's a good first step. A lot of People feel we need more, but but just the fact that they could come together and pass uh, gun regulation legislation is is encouraging. And what this this uh, provided a lot of funding for mental health resources. It really focused on the situation where you, uh, there's a mental health cause for gun violence. And um, I, I just, it's very important to keep in mind, just because someone has a mental health issue does not mean they are going to take a gun and hurt someone, if, uh, just the opposite. But it is true that some of the individuals, and I think it's fair to say the shooters in Uvalde and Buffalo had a history of mental health issues. And they were both 18 years old, by the way. So we're talking about young people and often young people exhibit these uh, mental health problems in the school setting where they're at. So they funded a lot of um, mental health programs, uh, both for the community and in the school system. They, they want to increase security programs in the system. They want to encourage states to implement red flag laws, and they provided for funding for that. So uh, red flag laws are laws that enable um, certain individuals who perhaps see troubling behavior on the part of an, um, a person who has access to guns to go into court and get a court order uh, that will allow law enforcement to remove those guns from that individual's possession, home, um, and also to issue, uh, the court will issue an order saying that that individual is prohibited from purchasing or possessing a gun, at least for a, a set period of time. So that's what red flag laws allow. And so they're granting funding to states to implement these programs if they haven't 
already done so. New York does have a red flag law. And in fact, uh, Governor Hochul just expanded upon that law in response to the, the, the Buffalo tragedy. And it allows um, not only law enforcement and family members and school officials to make such an application, but also health, health providers who, who perhaps notice issues that would suggest an individual should not have access to a weapon. And the, the new law, which was enacted, I believe back in June, also requires police and district attorney's offices in certain cases to, to apply for such uh, uh, an order. Uh, they're called extreme risk protection orders. Um, so, but getting back to the federal bipartisan Safer Communities Act, it also did expand the background check system a bit uh, with respect to gun buyer gun buyers who are under 21. So if you're under 21 and you're looking to buy a gun, they um, have expanded the system to include a mandatory search for juvenile justice records and mental health records. Uh, and also they, there is a provision that says if you can't locate that information within the three business day period that is now in federal law, they'll let you have up to 10 days if you need it. It's limited to this, these under 21 purchasers, but nonetheless, I think responding to the age of the shooters in Uvalde and Buffalo, uh, they, they do allow for a more expansive search. And they also, and this is a really good thing, they close what's known as a boyfriend loophole. So federal law in the past would prohibit um, someone from getting a gun if they had a domestic violence uh, restraining order against uh, either a spouse or perhaps a person with whom they shared children or a person they lived with. But it, it eliminated this category of people who are in a relationship, boyfriend, girlfriend, if you will, relationship, but perhaps weren't married, weren't living together, didn't have children together. But there, those are situations where you can still have domestic violence. So it, it now um, closes that loophole and it will allow um, uh, people who have um, restraining orders um, in a situation where it's a boyfriend, girlfriend, or an, you know, a romantic relationship they will be excluded um, from being able to purchase a gun as well. Um, doesn't, you know, doesn't ban assault weapons, um, doesn't ban the sale of semi-automatic rifles to people under 21. That's a law that uh, Governor Hochul just enacted um, in response to the Buffalo tragedy. Um, now uh, semi-automatic rifles cannot be sold to people under 21. Uh, doesn't ban the sale of large capacity magazines. Um, you know, there's didn't expand the um, number of days in which you can uh, you have to do a federal background check for most gun purchasers. Require that private sales do a background check. There's a lot it didn't do, but what it did do is good, and people hope that they're going to see more of an expansion in that area. There, there's legislation pending in the house to close what I described as Charleston loophole previously, and also to require background checks for private gun sales. That legislation is sitting in the house and um, hasn't been acted upon yet. Um, we'll see what happens. 
Right, and I know that that legislation is something that the New York State Bar Association supports, thanks to the uh, the work of you and uh, the task force on mass shootings and assault weapons of the New York State Bar Association uh, that uh, you were the co-chair of. So, Peggy Finnerday, I want to thank you for being with us on Miranda Warnings for enlightening us. I want to thank you for not only your service to the New York State Bar Association, but to the legal profession. Uh, it, you are uh, a wonderful uh, servant to our uh, profession, and we couldn't be happier to have you here on Miranda Warnings to talk about uh, gun regulations. These are all very serious topics, obviously, and you've uh, delved into them, uh, I think, in, in a way that uh, has been informative. We have a a more lighthearted feature on Miranda warnings that I, I want you to participate in. Oh. It's called it's called music book or movie. And you can share with us, uh, could be related to this topic or completely different, something uh, from the arts that uh, is important to you that we can share with our listeners. Well, I, I could tell you that I love the ballet. So that fits within the category of arts and music. And in fact, uh, yesterday evening, I just saw my favorite ballet, uh, which is Swan Lake. And I always find that it's a beautiful escape and very uplifting. And so that's how I sort of take my mind off of things and uh, escape to another world. Wonderful. Swan Lake. Peggy Finnerty, thank you so much for being with us on Miranda Warnings. Thank you, David. This has been Miranda Warnings, a New York State Bar Association podcast. You have the right to subscribe, rate, and review. 